Hello, I'm Howard Ryland. I'm the Deputy Editor for the Royal College of Psychiatrists CPD Online. Welcome to this timely podcast for CPD Online, where I'll be discussing the psychosocial response to the current COVID-19 crisis with Dr. Peter Hughes. We're very lucky to hear from Peter, who will be sharing insights from his experiences dealing with the fallout from Ebola and what we can use to help us manage the profound impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Peter and I have already recorded a podcast together some years ago about his experiences in Sierra Leone, responding to the psychosocial need created by the Ebola epidemic at that time. And this is also available to download for free from the college's website. That time we met, say, face-to-face, but because of social distancing, we're doing this remotely, so we're dealing with the technological challenges. So, Peter, hello. Welcome. Hello. So, Peter is a consultant psychiatrist and chair of the college's London division. He also has extensive experience around the world, working in some of the most challenging situations, including Iraq and Syria. So, Peter, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It would be good to start off by talking a little bit more about the Ebola epidemic to understand more about how it might relate to our current situation. And I expect that most listeners would have some general familiarity with Ebola from the news, but I imagine that very few will actually have personal experience of dealing with it. Can you give us a little bit more background about what it was like to deal with Ebola? Yeah, well, of course, at the moment, it's really bringing it back to me what it was like then. And I'm every day thinking how it compares now to back then. The sorts of things that you feel are the, are the fear and anxiety. Um, I was working in West Africa at the time when Ebola was very, very strong. There was about 100 cases every day, something like this. And Ebola, of course, is very different. I remember we used to say, at least Ebola isn't spread by droplet infection. And here we are now with COVID-19 spread by droplet infection. But of course, the other big thing was Ebola was like a death sentence. COVID-19 is so variable in in, in what it causes uh, with people. But of course, people with a pre-existing condition, it's so serious. Um, so at the time in West Africa, I, I was asked to uh, look at the psychosocial response to Ebola. And really, um, we had some information based on humanitarian disasters before and what to do. So what we, what we saw was... A, was population with a lot of anxiety. Some of the things that you expect to happen will be a doubling, roughly, of pre-existing mental health problems. And really, we didn't see that in the way we had expected. And I'm not sure what will happen with COVID-19 if you'll see that as well. So for example, we didn't see an increase of psychosis. We didn't see an increase of uh, PTSD, things like that. Uh, We just saw a lot of people with anxiety and stress problems, including the children, especially when the schools were cancelled. 
And one thing you know is that when the schools are cancelled, it means your society is closed in a sort of a way. And when schools start running again, your society is running again. So this is a very parallel time to how things are at the moment. Uh, during the Ebola crisis, um, we had a lot of issues with stigma. And any time communities are under stress or under pressure, you get an increase in gender-based violence. You get an increase of substance abuse. Um, and I think this is something that we learn from in COVID-19 and what might happen. Uh, I would expect there to be an increase of, of uh, violence. Uh, I'd expect there to be an increase of stigma. Back in Ebola time, we were seeing uh, stigma, not only against people with Ebola, but also people who were working with Ebola, so health workers. And this is something that I think we might see here again. If you're working with COVID-19, you may be at risk of being uh, stigmatized out of your accommodation. Your whole family may be stigmatized. So you're left feeling very, very isolated as a health worker working with Ebola and I think COVID-19. Uh, you're very isolated. You're um, always, always on edge. As everyone, you, these are invisible things. Uh, you don't know if someone has Ebola or COVID-19, first of all. What did help us a lot at the time of Ebola, though, were there are some concrete things like we believed that people weren't infectious if they didn't have active symptoms like a fever. So for us, we were able to check our temperature. Um, and if we had no temperature, we knew we, we were okay. COVID-19 is a bit different because you've got... Now the scary part is that you could be infectious without even having any symptoms whatsoever, um, is believed. So there's so much similarities and so much that is different. The scale of COVID-19, of course, is so much different to uh, Ebola. At the time, we thought we were overwhelmed with Ebola, but that was three countries, really, that were affected. So... Uh, and in a relatively limited geographical area. So very different, although working in an area that has such limited health resources at the best of times anyway, these health resources were really, really stretched. Again, even in a developed world like the UK, we're seeing services being stretched. And I'm thinking now about how we dealt with the Ebola crisis um, and learnings from that. What we realized is that what people really wanted was their basic needs met, both people suffering from Ebola and people who were working with, with Ebola. They wanted shelter, they wanted food, they wanted money. Uh, so any of our interventions we're looking at all those different areas for, for patients. People with infection would need, when they survived, they needed to have um, a place to live. Uh, they needed to have some money, a livelihood to keep going. Okay, so even though Ebola and COVID-19 are such very different illnesses, and 
occurred in very different contexts. It sounds like there are a huge number of similarities between the way that people respond to the illness and to the pressure that that illness puts on those societies. And I guess the, the focus in outbreaks is often on, quite understandably, the physical symptoms and the biology of the illness. But equally important is the impact on people's mental health. And you talked about the increase in the feelings of anxiety that you saw amongst the population. But also, um, I guess there are problems in terms of access to mental health services and the impact that the resources diverted to deal with the outbreak have on those people who already have mental illness. I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about what are the learning points that we can use from past epidemics when we actually think about the, the mental health challenges that we're currently facing. Okay, well, maybe if I start by just maybe starting a little bit on the personal level and how this affected me uh, personally. At the time of Ebola, I remember how scary it was, how we lived in this world where you smelt detergent all the time. Hand washing was part of your, was such an important part of your daily ritual. Taking your temperature was such an important part of your daily ritual. People dying every day, people you have met hearing that they had died, was something that we had every single day. Going to the hospital and seeing a dead body, a dead body was one of the most dangerous things possible. The fear we would have, uh, for myself, I was a contact uh, with some cases and the fear you get with that, the fear when you see, for example, outside the main hospital, seeing some discarded clothes, that you can just imagine that this is full of Ebola. So, so dangerous. Now, at this time, I got the same sort of fear. Um, for myself, I have an underlying condition, so I know that I'm very vulnerable. And if I'm near someone who I know has had, I've been in contact with people who have had um, COVID-19, I get the same kind of fear. It's the same sensation as before. But on a systems level, looking at the hospital system and how, how people responded uh, to, to these things, um, one thing that we found very helpful at the time of Ebola was the advocacy around people's basic needs advocacy around health workers having protection equipment. Uh, this was really, really important. And as a psychiatrist, I was stretched beyond my usual role to be advocating for these basic needs. Uh, then we had programs of where we were training people in what's called psychological first aid. Now, psychological first aid is a very fancy term for basically just common sense being nice to people. Uh, it's responding to people in need and distress. Uh, so you, if you see someone who, for example, is um, physically unwell, you have to deal with that. In the 
case of Ebola, it was that you had to deal with that in a safe way and to protect yourself. So people needed to be isolated away or you could only see them if you're, you're in the proper uh, protective gear. Uh, other things that we would deal with at that time in terms of our response was dealing with the issues of, of violence, substance abuse, etc., that came up. Also behavioral problems in children. Uh, so things that were very helpful uh, were dealing with these basic needs. And one of the basic needs that's very, very important is good information. So we wanted to have authoritative information and avoid all rumors. One of the things that happens in, in crises like this is the rumors start flying. And I see this, of course, now with so many emails and different stories about COVID-19. It's kind of too much. It's too much. Rumors start spreading and disinformation. Um, other parts of this psychological first aid were really just listening to people, not talking to them, listening to people. I can remember um, having some staff support sessions where we just listened to people who were really, really terrified. Um, some people were losing their accommodation because they worked with Ebola. I remember one situation where someone had died in the team and uh, people were so scared uh, for their own selves and for their families. So listening, it was really all that we can do, but it really was important. Uh, we helped people with, with problems of sleeping by just basic discussing sleep hygiene, relaxation techniques, etc. Uh, the other part of psychological first aid is really strengthening people's local community supports, bringing people together as much as, in spite of social distancing, you can still socially connect um, without uh, breaking the rules of, of the public health rules. In West Africa, some of the, the things that were very important to people were their community and family. And the religion was actually very, very important for people. For some people, they stopped being religious and that was okay as well. But we had to see that the person who was expert on their own stress management was the patient themselves, the person themselves, whether it was a patient or a health worker. And I think that's one of the lessons for um COVID-19 is that uh, any intervention, any psychological intervention must be tailored around that person. Uh, it must be about, once you have met their basic needs, it's about a lot of listening time and stress reduction. Listening to someone is stress reduction in itself. Giving good information is stress reduction. Um, the other thing that I, we learned from uh, Ebola time was the stigma um, and how we deal with that was kind of educational programs and public messaging and also the survivors. I, I do remember so vividly a survivor of Ebola telling me that the worst part of being a sufferer of Ebola in the treatment unit was people not using his name and seeing how people were afraid of him. Uh, so they would leave the food at the end of the of the bed, keep really distant from him, and really, really difficult. Although I saw heroic efforts as well, where 
people even in all their uh, PPE were still being human with people with Ebola, with patients. And I think this is something for COVID-19 as well, is to remember always to treat patients with respect, call them by their name. And when people have severe COVID-19 infection and suffocating for breath, they really need human, a human presence near them, I think, uh, to help, help them get through that. So it sounds like it's really the, the simple things that are so important, ensuring that people's basic needs are met, ensuring that um, people are listened to, um, and ensuring that people are actually treated as human beings. And I just wanted to ask about how we deal with some of the challenges that we might face, in particular some of the ethical challenges that might arise from potential conflicts between um, the clinical and the public health perspectives. Right. So with any epidemic, the treatment is the public health side of it. The treatment is the public health measures, looking at the society as a whole, with so, as we see now, social distancing and hand washing are what keep us alive, what protect us. So I don't think there's a conflict between that and actually the clinical side of treating every patient we see. There's ethical issues around testing. And we know that WHO says we must test. It's all about testing. And from the time of Ebola, working, spending a lot of time with infectologists who would talk about uh, testing and contact um, tracing as one of the building blocks of epidemic prevention. And that's something that I think is important for this uh, epidemic as well. When you talk about ethical issues, I always think of the issue of rationing resources. Health workers being in a position where they can really kind of decide if someone is going to live or die, uh, looking at who's going to be the most likely to survive. If you've got a set number of ventilators, who are you going to use those for? Um, This is a very hard thing for health workers to have and to take home with them at the end of their shift. And you, you talked about the fear that you experienced, that many of your colleagues experienced. And I expect that many people listening to this may be feeling themselves. In this time of increased stress and uncertainty, how can we look after ourselves? Right. I would say to whoever is listening to this, you are probably the expert yourself on how to deal with this. You will know yourself better than any of us. You don't need a psychiatrist to tell you how to manage your stress. There is a lot going around about basic things, about uh, having a routine, uh, getting good sleep. But I think it's doing your job well and being able to leave your job and go home and not take us home with you, even when you have had horrible seen horrible things even when you've had to make really really difficult decisions and for me it's quite difficult because I'm not working in the front line in an ITU so I don't know what it's like there 
I think for those people, I would suggest doing the things that they always find relaxing, finding the strength within them to shut their minds off as much as they can when they finish their shift. Um, important strategies about reducing stress as well is to take lots of breaks. Don't take on too much and don't take on more than you should. Um, don't do extra shifts, just do the shifts that you're assigned, I think will be some of the sorts of things. Everyone is going to be different in how they deal with stress in terms of some people will like music or reading or sport or something like that. You'll be the expert. But remember that I think it's probably helpful to know about yourself and when you know you are stressed. Um, and this is something working in the humanitarian field over the years is knowing yourself when your breaking point is and what happens when you have your breaking point and understanding it. Um, because if you pass your breaking point, you make mistakes. In the time of Ebola, you could not afford to make a mistake because making a mistake in your PPE or whatever was probably a death sentence. So when this is well, you can't make mistakes. So you've got to really owe it to yourself and to your patients to look after yourself in every way. So just one final point I'll, I'll just say in, like, in the West, West African situation, we kind of thought this is never going to end. This is really a nightmare. And it did end. And I've been back to West Africa since then, and life was normal. People had moved on. Human beings are extraordinary. And for the same for this, this will end, and we will return to normal life. Thank you for that message of hope, Peter. I think that's a, a wonderful point to finish on. So thank you very much for sharing your experiences and your insights. Um, to help us to actually think how we can respond to the current challenge that we face from COVID-19. Thank, Thank you. you.